HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you a sensational episode where each story hones in on one of the four senses that accompanies taste. Many of the smells that we uh, encounter in everyday life actually exist out there in the cosmos. Food carries all these culturally specific meanings. The fact that, you know, when you see an apple, it's not just an apple, right? I was mostly interested in thinking about what knobs ASMR was pulling on, maybe, or how we could explain it from a psychological or emotional or evolutionary standpoint. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief, with your hosts, Sara Tangora, that's me, and Bobby Comforto, my mom, not pictured at the moment, but here with us in spirit as always. Um, hey folks, how's everyone doing? Uh, I am very good, thank you for asking. Uh, it's a gray day here in New York City, but I'm really into it because I think sometimes a gray day as much as I've adored the beautiful weather we've been having, I'm so grateful for it. Um, sometimes a gray day is just a little bit lower pressure and you can do all those things you've been putting off, like cleaning the dishwasher and, I don't know, cleaning behind the refrigerator and cleaning other <laughs> appliances that are forgotten about. Um, anyway, let's get to the point, okay? Let's talk about why we're all here. We are talking this week with our friend and yours, um, Eli Sussman. Eli and I have known each other and been buds for almost a decade. And he is coming on today to talk about um, the recent closure of the last location of him and his brother Max's restaurant, Samisa. Uh, Samisa was an incredible place with delicious, delicious, beautiful, bright, vibrant food. Um, And, you know, due to the state of the world and what's happening in the restaurant industry, they were pushed to close. And, you know, I closed a restaurant myself, so did Bobby. So it definitely makes for a very interesting conversation. We can all connect on the same kind of feelings of grief and loss in losing your business. Um, But yeah, as, as Eli goes on to mention in the episode, it's just a very complicated type of loss um, because often we tie our 
identities into the businesses that we create. And uh, when they close or when they don't work or when, you know, whatever happens that we have to walk away from them, it's a very complicated feeling in the moment and then in the aftermath of kind of rediscovering who we are um, and why we decided to do the things we do and how we do them differently next time. So, you know, the grief of losing a business is can be really intense. I know, and you guys will hear from listening to the episode that Eli will find a way, I'm sure, in the very near future to rebuild Samisa in an even more magical and sustainable way. Um, He's a great cook. He's a great business owner and a great person. And I have all the faith. We have all the faith in him that he is going to thrive after this experience. But that being said, it is a very good and rich and textured conversation. Um, And it's a unique conversation, one we haven't really kind of explored yet on the show. So I hope you guys all enjoy that. Um, Just a couple of statistics about what's been happening with restaurants. Um, 60% of restaurants that temporarily closed due to the pandemic have since shuttered for good. As of July, which I mean is at the time of this recording four months ago, um, there were 16,000 restaurant closures in the U.S., Um, And then without stimulus, it's being said that 36,000 small businesses will close over the winter. So that's pretty intense. Um, So please, you know, keep that in mind. Um, The issue of supporting restaurants, I mean, obviously support your local restaurants for sure. But um, it's a complicated one because with indoor dining, it really puts restaurant employees lives at risk and health at risk. So I urge you to kind of speak to the people in your life. If you know people who work in the restaurant industry and servers and, uh, kind of just get their perspective about, you know, how to proceed, you know, what to do when you're at a restaurant, how to tip, how to act, how to, you know, I mean, some of these things are just intuitive, but it's a bigger issue than I think we have time for right now in this small little blip of time. But, um, that being said, restaurants need help and there's lots of, um, organizations that are out there that have formed to do mutual aid and to protect restaurants and to advocate for restaurants. Um, one that was very close, that is very close to our heart, which, uh, provides mutual aid to restaurant workers, um, is the service workers coalition. And we definitely urge you to go check out what they're doing and donate to them. All of the proceeds go directly to restaurant workers um, and they're able to provide a really good amount of money. And since the pandemic began to people who are in need of, you know, food supplies and it's, it's great. And there's a lot of other uh, organizations out there doing similar things. Um, Also, Eli, I should mention, is the host of a wonderful podcast right here on Heritage Radio Network called The Line. I was actually the first guest years and years ago. Look at that. How far, how far we have come. I think there's like 100, over 100 episodes by now. Um, And it's a great show. Great podcast. Definitely something I listen to very regularly. And you should too. All right. I've been blabbing on. Are you guys still listening? I hope so because we have a great episode for you. So without any further ado, we give you Eli Sussman. Okay, love you all very, very much. Have a wonderful week and we'll talk to you in seven 
days from now. Okay, bye. Okay, well, what a special episode we have today. We are joined by friend of the show, friend of life, Eli Sussman. How's it going, Eli? Hi, good morning. Hi, good morning. What's going on? I am at my apartment in Crown Heights. Nice. So how does it feel to, like, so, I mean, we'll get into it, but you recently closed your restaurant, Samisa. I did. And I remember after I closed Brucey, that feeling of no longer having to go into work, I mean, was like just such a relief. How does it feel to be home at your apartment on a rainy day instead of at work? Yeah, it's there is some relief. There is a relief on the side of not having to check my phone and email every two seconds and worry about something being wrong I tended to be an owner that was always waiting for the thing to go wrong so I was for years and years anticipating the plumbing problem text message and the someone didn't show up to work text message so those those text not coming in or having no chance of them coming in has been wonderful and freeing and probably really good for my mental well-being. I am missing the hustle bustle of the daily grind and I am very much missing having a specific daily purpose of, oh, I'm awake now. That means that I have to be working on something related to uh, the brick and mortar location of my restaurant. So it's a mixed bag emotionally, but I feel, I feel a lot, uh, more relaxed when I wake, when I wake up. So since you're not cooking in the restaurant, what have you been cooking at home or have you been cooking at home? Yeah, I cook a lot anyways at home and I have been cooking a lot more during the pandemic as well as, recently since I don't have to go to work every day. So yesterday I made braised brisket per my wife's request. She likes, I make this very Jewishy traditional braised brisket that has apricots and dates and red wine. And so it's very sticky and sweet and, uh, she loves that. And she had been requesting that for a while. So I made that. And then a couple days before I smoked a turkey, <gasps> Yeah, do you have a backyard? I do have a backyard and I have a grill and it has a little offset smoker box on it. So I had actually never done that before in a non-electric gas assist smoker. I'd done it in a wood electric and a gas electric. And so this was just putting in wood and trying to trying to do it. And uh and it came out pretty it came out pretty delicious. It was probably 80% of what I wanted it to be, but it was still really delicious. But it was cool to have the time to uh, just smoke a big hunk of turkey in the backyard, which is not something that I probably would have normally done had I been driving back and forth to the restaurant or dealing with things related to the restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting what you were kind of saying before about that 
mixed bag about the relief and also the sadness. I mean, it's similar to like, I think when you, you know, have a loved one who's like really been sick for a long time, I can feel like, you know, I can connect in multiple ways what you're saying as a former business owner and as someone who like lost my dad when he was like sick for so long that like, it's weird when you're living in this like state of constant volatility, you know, or, or someone could relate from being in like a really toxic and horrible relationship with someone that they also, you know, are tied to and love. Maybe they have like children with or something that like, you know, it's this thing that you're used to and there's, there's love there and there's purpose there, but you're always waiting for something horrible to happen or for some kind of tense situation to arise. And you like, don't realize how your nervous system acclimates to living in a constant state of volatility you know, and one thing that I noticed after I closed Brucey and after my dad died, honestly, was, you know, in addition to the depression and sadness and missing of it, like, like shedding that, coming out of that state of living in constant volatility is a really interesting new thing because you almost don't realize how used to it you were. Well, the truth is that though the things that happen when we're anticipating something, that anticipatory grief or anticipatory loss, is that it changes our nervous system. And the anxiety that you were describing, which I can relate to completely, having been a business owner too, that constant anxiety, it affects your chemistry. And we don't actually feel that till later. So it's not as if, okay, it's over and now I won't feel that. There's still that flood of stress hormones that uh, you know, that happened. But at least yeah. the, the, um, the thing that causes it isn't there. So, so how have you been feeling recently? It's... It's been this general kind of reawakening of how I define myself. That has been a unique and challenging way to move forward, which is for many, many years, I was just first and foremost, I am the guy who owns Samisa Restaurant. That was how I pretty much interacted with any person. Oh, I'm a chef and a restaurant owner. And what do you do? Oh, well, every single day, pretty much I go to work. And even when I'm not there, I'm dealing with certain small things that are going on at the restaurant. So I never turned it off. And that became a way for me to get out of social obligations that I didn't want to participate in. And also it allowed me to create a sort of own mythology about myself and about the business. And so, and I loved that. Let's, let's just establish that I was very happy in this like very hectic, stressful work environment in which, uh, it gave me this sense of importance where I like to say to myself, oh, well, I'm responsible for people's jobs. You know, I order from purveyors, so they're responsible for my business and customers rely on Samisa because they enjoy it and it's a big part of their lives. The truth about that is when I closed, honestly, most of those people can easily find another job, maybe not as easily during a global pandemic, but you know, jobs are usually going to be available to the people you employ in a restaurant in under normal circumstances. Your customers find a new place that serves similar cuisine to you and and you kind of just retreat back into your normal life as everyone else does, you know? And uh 
And that has been hard to kind of realize that uh, maybe Samisa wasn't as such a big deal as I made it out to be in my head. Uh, but, it was, but it was your identity. So that yeah. is a big deal. But we change yeah. identities in life. You know, we do change, right? We transform. Yeah. And at the same time, the wind down of the business and taking a little bit of time away, it's only been, today's the 16th, so we, we, I physically moved out of the space 16 days ago, and it definitely has made it clear to me that I'm not done with Samisa as a brand and as a concept, and that I'm not done in this industry. That became, that was always crystal clear and it was apparent when I drove away with a U-Haul filled with stuff to take to a storage facility and I still feel that way every day when I wake up that I would like to be cooking Mediterranean food and I would like to be a business owner. So I haven't lost the the taste for it. I haven't lost the drive, but it has been a good exercise in reevaluating priorities of work-life balance and also uh, having a long time to reflect on certain operational mistakes that were made over the years of running the business and how when I do relaunch, okay, what am I going to do that will make it so that what I alluded to earlier, which is like being glued to my phone and waiting for a disaster to strike, how can I avoid that type of mentality again when I relaunch the business? Right. Well, you know, the sense of identity, too, is also something that's like so like similar to all different kinds of grief, too. It's like I was, you know, I was so-and-so's mom or I was so-and-so's wife and my husband died or we got divorced or, you know, I was so-and-so's daughter uh, or son. And it's just like that part of reevaluating who you are is like so is so deep. And also, I just really connected so much to what you were saying before about um, you know, you got to use this as your identity and being like, I'm Eli who owns Samisa. And that's like, you know, it, earlier today when I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to talk about, I was thinking about why people open restaurants in the first place, right? Because it's almost like going swimming in shark infested waters. You know, there's a pretty good chance you're going to get bit. We all know everybody says, if, if you tell anyone you, open, you own a restaurant, they're like, that's a really hard business, huh? So it's like widely known. It's like an incredibly hard business, yet we choose to do it anyway. And I think a lot of the reason I was chatting with Bobby about this this morning, I think it's tied to ego. I think, but not in a bad way necessarily. It's just like that it and like the super ego and like you cook something for somebody, you're like trying to provide them with pleasure, right? And so you like give them, you know, your shawarma and uh, (laughs) it almost has like a funny like connotation. Like you give them your shawarma and you want to give them pleasure. Anyway, so you give someone like a delicious thing you make and you want them to be excited about it. You want it to make them feel good. And also you want it to be the best of that thing that they ever had and that you want them to recognize that you made that. And I think if we were to be honest, that's a lot of the reason we do it. And there's other alternative reasons, of course, like financial for yourself or providing something in the community, providing jobs. But I, th- I think a lot of it as a cook is being like, look what I can do. I can make this really, really good and you're going to like it. And then you'll look to me and say that I make this the best. And that's very validating. And when you reach a point where people are publicly speaking about you, especially in this kind of very difficult, you know, restaurant 
uh, industry that we'll, we used to have in New York City, you know, and and you're being called out for making the best so-and-so and, and your restaurant is great and people love it. It's so fulfilling. And to lose that part of your identity, Eli, who owns Samisa and makes the best shawarma and has this cool restaurant. And it's like, it's really like starting over in a certain way as being just like kind of an ambiguous kind of member of society again, which is a big adjustment. Yeah, my brother, who's my business partner, and uh, and we've obviously spent a lot of time together. We were roommates in New York, then we were business partners. We've written cookbooks together. So we have a tight family relationship, but also we're business partners. But the going back to what you just said about ego is that I have a gigantic ego and my brother doesn't really have a big ego. And so, and when we approach the business and the restaurant and defining ourselves, um, my brother has been much more okay with the idea of he is this guy who has a thing that he does for work that he enjoys a great deal. And how I approached it was when I was in Los Angeles before I moved to New York and I had a normal desk job, I remember having these interactions with people where they would ask me what I did and I could see in their eyes that they were bored by my desk job profession. And I can honestly say that since I've ever been a prep cook or a line cook, even into being a sous chef and now owning my own business, my job was never boring once I became a cook. And I was always able to be either a central or a uh, a large part of a dinner party conversation. People were always interested in my job and my day to day. And I did derive a huge amount of pleasure and it fed my ego to be someone who had a uh, a lifestyle and a career that was enviable by many and desirable by many. Of course, you've just made it clear that it's swimming with sharks and it's not the best life or or career choice you could make. But that was always uh, hugely important to me to be like defined as someone who had a uh, non-traditional lifestyle that worked in a restaurant and, and did that. And my brother would always kind of basically call bullshit on it and say like, we're just cooks. It's not really that big of a deal. We own a restaurant. Sure. But there are a million restaurants in the United States. Like what we do is exciting because the media has propped it up in the last couple years as this fantastic, sexy career. But truth be told, you know, it's just a job. You just go to the job just like anybody else. So it's been good to have his balance over the years and also to have a business partner who doesn't perceive every event in the exact same way that I do. So I can have a bit of a counterbalance to the way that I interact with the business wind down and Interesting. And, yeah you know what i was thinking about it in a restaurant is that it's such a creative endeavor you know you're creating and it, it's like your baby you know it's like creating a, a baby a child and the anticipation of it i don't know i remember setting up different businesses i've had three or four different businesses food businesses in my life and then anticipation of getting everything ready and and then the birth the opening day you know, and then how you care for it all along. And if something, if it falls, you, your heart is broken. And um, so it's really like a baby because of the creation that's involved. There's so much creativity every day. Yeah, I'm losing it. And like closing it and letting go is tough in the way. And I'm reminded of, we had a guest, a wonderful guest, Donna Orbach, who came on and chatted with us a couple months ago about the loss of her son. 
And we talked about, um, I asked the question of like, where does like the love go when you lose something, right? And I think in the same sense of like, when you close a creative project, like you have all of this creativity and stuff that you want to do and this desire to be seen, to produce, to be part of a conversation. And then you're not for whatever amount of time. And like, but that doesn't go away, right? And so I feel like, for myself, like, I, I don't know, like, I tried to find some other outlets. It, was, it wasn't quite working. I don't know that I have yet found another outlet that works totally the same way that Brucey did for me. But it's an interesting thing that I think about a lot. Like, where does that go? Because you have it. So it either completely dies. That's not, like, likely. Or it tries to, like, squish out in weird ways. Or you try to tamp it down and that doesn't work. I don't know. Like, what do you what do you think for you? Like, now having this different you know, being new, freshly into it, but like, you know, having a different lifestyle and yet still having your drive and your, and your enthusiasm and your love of food, like, where do you find it as of now going? What made the process, the, the grieving process over clothing Samisa, the brick and mortar location easier is that I do have every intention of reopening a new location. So while it was incredibly painful, to close that location and physically give back the keys, knowing that I still want to do it and that I have the opportunity down the line to relaunch it somehow has has made it an, an easier transition. Perhaps it's not going to allow me to grow as much during this interim because I'm almost, I, I'm not almost, I am already, the gears are turning. I'm already looking to the next thing. And so, you know, people have said, take a, take a breather, take some time, uh, really like get some perspective on it. I know I'm not good at that. And I know I could be doing a much better job at that. I'm already pushing forward. So I guess if I were to say, where is the love going? I would say that I'm still holding on to the idea that I can keep out all of that that's inside my chest right now and just dump it onto a new version of the project as soon as I can. So there is a rush to get something else open. There is pressure, self-imposed pressure to get something else going so that I can keep that energy and keep that love, as you said, alive and just transfer it to another version of an entity. And I, to just go one step further, which is we've always had Samisa exist as sort of a, a multi, it's, it's had many permutations. It's existed in various formats and various locations. And I think that that has actually made it easier for me to close down this location without it being as devastating as it has been to some other business owners, because I've I, while I was attached to that location, it was never the be all end all for me in my mind. And so people that opened, you know, a, a big flagship location and they poured every design element and every single last bit of their creativity into the space, we didn't have the opportunity to do that based on, you know, financial limitations. So to me, and this, this might sound terrible, but like, that the location that I close always in my mind was going to be the stepping stone to something hopefully greater. And so closing it was, 
was not on the time frame. Closing it now was not the time frame in which I wanted to do it. But there was always part of me that thought this will not be forever at this location. Uh, yeah. What, what I'm hearing is that you are Samisa. <laughs> that it's not that you had it. You are it. <laughs> yeah, right? I guess. Yeah. You know? I, I don't know how healthy that is, but yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's interesting. You are moving very fast through the grieving process. You know, as a grief expert, I will tell you that when I heard that it's just been 15 days, 16 days, it's pretty amazing because there really is a process. You're saying I had a lot of anticipatory grief, so I thought about it ahead of time. I anticipated the loss beforehand, which tends to make the grieving process a little quicker when you go through it beforehand, you know. So, but the other thing is that there's two different theories. You know, one is the um, theory of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross that everybody knows the five stages of grief, you know, anger and bargaining and um, denial. I'm sorry, it starts with denial, bargaining, anger, um, you know, acceptance. So there's that. But then there's another theory of grief that involves tasks of grief. And the last task is who am I now? And it seems like you're already into that task. You've gone through all the stages of grief, you know, all of them. And we'd like to hear more about that. Like, did you have denial in the beginning? And oh, did you feel anger and frustration definitely. and fear? And um, and did you feel that bargaining element of like, well, if I just do this, then maybe I can change it or, you know. I think that's the one that, for me at least, and I, I'm sure for you and Bobby, I would think for you too, when you find out that something isn't working business-wise, mm-hmm. I think the bargaining. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And oh, the denial. But I've been but bargaining for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you start bargaining. you got to yeah. bargain from the minute, right? You're right. just like, okay, well, I'll offset this thing. I won't pay the sales tax this month. Right, right. And I'll get the new thing that we need. But it'll be fine. It's like it's really like gambling. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind so, of you're fooling yourself. You're kind of we minimize the seriousness of it by the games we play in our head. Definitely. And yeah. and I'll rewind a little bit to address your your question and your point, which is that uh, March 10th, when things were already not really going that great at Samisa, uh, we were in our fourth year, and things were stagnant to a certain extent from the perspective of it being a restaurant, you know, a place that people interact with as a restaurant. It wasn't doing great. We were doing fine. I would even say we were doing well as a catering entity. So, you know, multiple parts of the business functioning at the same time and not everything going super swimmingly. And Max and I already having hard decisions, discussions about hard decisions that need to be made. And then, I walk in on on that weekend before, you know, essentially the world shut down and I'm having a conversation with my staff and I'm saying, yeah, I'm not sure if we'll be closed for a weekend. In the back of my head, I know we're going to be closed for more than a weekend. And then I'm saying, you know, yeah, we might be closed for two weeks, but that'll give us an opportunity to figure some things out. So I'm already bargaining with myself and already, already trying to maybe build a narrative in my head of how to solve what would become essentially an unsolvable problem. And then, and then if I can build on that a little more, the week following all of my locations, we, we shut them down. And now I'm at home and I am thinking, why me? Why me? Why me? Why is this happening to me? Why am I going to lose my business? Right? Then the, let's say the week or so after that, it became why the hospitality industry? Why is this happening to us? And so that was a mixture of anger and denial and bargaining all together at the same time. And then what happened was 
when when April or so, when things got really bad in New York City, and it was just constant ambulances every second of every single day, it crystallized for me how big the problem was and how my problem and my little restaurant was really paling in comparison to the fact that, you know, 20,000 people were getting sick a day or in the mm-hmm. hospital every single day. It gives the perspective, yeah. It, yeah, and that provided me this, that was a very terrible gift that was provided to me, which gave me the opportunity to reframe the entire existence of me and my business under the cloud of COVID. And what happened at that second is I said, the business could close tomorrow. I have a super safe house. My wife still has her job. We both have our health. We could get in the car tomorrow and drive to my family's house in Michigan and everything would be fine. Like, And when you frame your life in the sense of wow, I actually have pretty much everything I need. I'm losing the thing that I wanted. At that point, I really, the the anger and the sadness that I had about losing the business, I was actually able to channel that into focusing on what I thought was a lack of governmental response to the restaurant industry. So I was still angry. I think I got to, (laughs) I think I got to use it in a different way that felt productive to me, whether it was productive or not. I'm going to, I'm going to stick it by and say that it was productive to not just continually be saying, why me, why me, why me? Um, And it gave me the opportunity to say, what happens in the future is going to be uh, partly my construction based on how I want to move forward, but also it's a little bit out of my control because it's a global pandemic that I am a very, 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 very small part of. I'm interacting with it in the same uh, level of importance as everyone else, regardless of if I have a business or not. So um, all of those steps happened in March, April, May. And by the time I actually reopened Samisa and then had the opportunity to reflect on whether or not I was closing it or not, I almost had already had the thousand conversations in my head about how it was going to go. And so at that point, I I was ready almost in a way for it to happen. Of course, that makes sense. You also had what I call the the gift of um, being able to have perspective because what happens is that normally – we don't have that. We're so much in our own microcosm when we have a loss. And it's really hard to see anything around you. It's just there's so much going on. There's so much turmoil that you're just inwardly focused. And it takes time for somebody that's grieving any loss to finally get that perspective. But what you're saying, the pandemic just like was right in front of your face. And it really helped you move along. Now I'm understanding why your grieving process is moving along as quickly as well, it yeah. is. Well, <laughs> yeah. I think it accelerated a lot of people's yeah. life and put into perspective and perspective is huge in being able to, to cope. And also I just think like, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that I think letting go is something as business owners, especially like restaurant owners, because of the like demand of the return on investment, because of the ego, because of all of those things, like we're not very used to letting things go. We're not very used to being like, all right, well, that dish was, it wasn't great. Like the customer didn't like it or you undercooked that chicken or, you know, 
a delivery didn't come in, no big deal. You know, that's not how it works. Like everything is like really high intensity and we don't let things go easily. And we certainly don't want to let the business go. And so I think there's like such a, I don't know, such a release and relief in being able to actually come to terms with like, this is what it means to let go in life. You know, I've had to do that a lot and it's been a struggle for me in various ways. I had a really hard time with it after the restaurant closed. I've had a hard time with it in other ways, but I mean, sometimes you just like have to look at yourself in the mirror and be like, this is this part of my life as I wanted it to be with this person, with this family member, with this business, with this job, like is over. Like this, this version of this is over. It won't come back. And like, and that's accept. It's, that's acceptance. And, right. And it takes right. a little while to get there. It takes a while. It takes a while. I actually, I actually see it a little bit differently about being in the food business. And I had a catering business, um, you know, and a, a retail food store for 12 years. And then I had another business after that, an hors d'oeuvre company. And both of them I lost. Um, but so it was a little different than a restaurant. But I think as in the food business, there are losses every day. There's things you can't control every single day. But most of the time you overcome them. Like Zara said, you accept a lot of them, you know. But I think that that trains you in a way because there's so much powerlessness every day. And yet there's that dichotomy of having a lot of power when you have a food business and then also having all these things that happen all the time where you're powerless. It's like both, right? And I think that it strengthens you. I mean, anybody in the food business, I think, is very strong. They're trained to be so strong day after day after day. That is true, which I think also can make it more difficult sometimes to be like, you know, you're so used to being like, everything's fine. I have to keep this in order. I have to keep this regimented, which can make it hard to accept something not going your way. But Well, it's, um, it's similar to other losses where you always can fix things. I say this about bereaved parents all the time. They always fix things. They solve things for their kids all the time. They break a leg. They Something happens. They are upset over and over. And then when the time comes that you can't fix it, the powerlessness that you feel is unbearable. You know, so powerless is a theme in grief, right? Yeah. Yeah, power, it really is. And one thing I think that, Eli, I think like maybe you and I can relate more on this only because we had our businesses in the time of kind of a public-facing media and social media kind of time is that I noticed this for myself, and I'm, I'm assuming you felt similarly, but I want to know what you think, is that there's times when you know it's not working and like it might be time to call it you know I've I've skirted by a payroll at this time I'm having to cut costs in this way like I'm really coming down to it but like you never really want to say at least I didn't that it's not financially working I always felt like a real shame behind that like the last thing I'd ever want to say is I'm not making money totally you know I'd rather say anything I'd rather like I don't even like I would have rather anything happen than be like, it's not financially working because that reflected on me as a a failure. And, and I'm not someone who is, you know, pro capitalism. I'm not someone who idealizes rich people or being rich or anything like that. But there was something about it not doing well financially that felt really embarrassing to me and perpetuated because of the public facing nature of it. And cause like your name's out there kind of in the, in the zeitgeist of, of restaurants in New York city, like to admit any kind of weakness, uh, isn't really what people do. How do you feel about that? It's, it's so different to, uh, to have to lose a, a loved one because it is, it is truly finite and you don't get a decision. Right. But with a restaurant, 
what you were just saying, Zara, there is this constant pushing the goal line or the finish line and negotiating about when the true death of the business is going to occur because you are actually, until the bank comes and seizes everything inside if you get to that point or until you know the the power gets cut off you're always saying to yourself well i think we're going to turn the corner next month you know like we didn't uh pay our sales tax this month but that's okay because don't we have that huge gig that we usually get that's every december and you know we have those christmas gigs and so we're going to make it work so there is this kind of um there is this constant re-evaluating, but it's also you're making these kind of false promises to yourself. Unless you're a restaurant that's just in, in the black, if you're a restaurant that's having a couple bad months and you're struggling, you're always kind of telling yourself that you'll figure it out and you'll be able to rework it. And so part of what is so scary about pulling the plug on a restaurant is as as you as you alluded to it's controlling the external narrative of the restaurant but also what is your own narrative that you're telling yourself like is it okay to close a restaurant and tell yourself that you were a success right like if you have a restaurant for 20 years and you close it are you successful because you've been open for 20 years or are you not successful because you closed your restaurant right like i i could spin that and i could spin any restaurant a variety of ways and what's been so strange during covid is that of course, I want every restaurant to be successful. But what has been bizarre is I have taken a certain amount of of solace in the in seeing that there are other restaurants that have pulled back the curtain and that they've acknowledged for the first time ever that they are struggling. That restaurants that I thought, you know, print money and make millions of dollars a year have said I have six more weeks until I need to close my doors. And so Grand Grand Central Oyster Bar. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like places, you know, these, these cultural institutions that you think to yourself, um, well, they have it all figured out and they must really be just at the, they they're at the pinnacle of success. They're a successful restaurant in New York city, the hardest place to do it. And it didn't make me feel good to see places struggling, but it did make me feel less bad about my situation to see that places just maybe did not necessarily have it completely figured out. And when I was able to acknowledge to myself that I was a struggling business to know truthfully that there are other places that were struggling was helpful in allowing me to be truthful with myself about about the about the realities of where of where the business was and the realities of like okay maybe like we're not gonna turn the corner like I've been telling myself for the last 12 months you know we we haven't been turning the corner for quite some time now so let's be realistic about where we're at well Go ahead, Bobby. No, I just brought up a few things, but go ahead. You you make your point. Um, well, no, I was just going to say that I was reading something the other day, and the it was an article, and the author had said, grief is not a weakness, right? And I think in the same – and I think it's a lot of the reason why when people are in grief in our society – you know, we're a death-denying and grief-denying culture, and I think a lot of that is about that it's viewed as weak, and weak is viewed as bad. And – I think mourning is viewed as weakness and crying is viewed as weakness and that being strong is is viewed as a positive attribute and that like 
you know, in the same sense in the restaurant business, admitting vulnerability financially and admitting how like, you know, to use the shark analogy again, how if you do jump into shark infested waters, there's a very good chance you'll get eaten. And that's not a negative nor a positive. It's just a fact. And that it doesn't matter how good of a swimmer you are. It just could still happen. There are sharks everywhere. And so I think that like, you know, one thing that would be great and and is a positive kind of, you know, if you can call it that outcome of of how the restaurant industry has, you know, bared uh, how how vulnerable everyone is. And it's all kind of come to light. And I think that's important because I think one of the most dangerous things actually for restaurant owners and for, you know, restaurants in general is to live under this guise that everyone is fine. And if you're busy and if you're popping, we would have like three hour waits to sit down at Brucey sometimes. And also we would miss sales tax for six months and that can both exist. And I think it's really important to admit that because if you don't admit it, then you're living under this thing where you're always having to show and prove and as though being behind in your sales tax or not making money is a negative where it shouldn't be embarrassing. It's really hard. Or that it's, it's a, ref- a or of- that it's a reflection of you as a human being. Right. It's a reflection of, of you. Exactly. No, and then no. if you go ahead and tie it back to like kind of the reason of wanting to get involved in restaurants in the first place of having something to kind of prove and that my thing is the best. Well, how could your thing possibly be the best if you're not making money. But the reality is that those could both exist. You can make the best fucking apple pie and be not and be losing money. They're not the same There's thing. There's duality everywhere. Um, right. Two of the things that I thought of when Eli was talking before was one about the closing of a business and the rituals. With any loss, the rituals that you have. And Zara had quite a ritual when she closed Brucey. Sorry, remember the funeral? Do you want to just talk about that a little bit? Because that was just so powerful. It was we did a a two night thing, and it was Valentine's Day was always a big deal for us. So we did a wedding the first night and a funeral the second night, and you know, truly like kind of mourning. We had one of our uh, bartenders dress up in a priest's outfit and get on top of the bar and do a eulogy. I mean, we really went for it. But you had a New you New Orleans funeral band. And it was yeah. just, it was really incredible because, you know, ritualizing something, it sounds like you walked away. And I wonder what that felt like for you, Eli, just to walk away when you said, when you gave back the keys, you know, what was that final ending like for you? Yeah, the the nice thing was that we had a, a bit of control on the date. So we negotiated a... Uh, a deal to vacate the space with our landlord. So we had... Uh, a five-day announcement that was, these are our last five days of service. It gave people the opportunity to come by and have one last meal. And I got to say goodbye in person to a lot of people and have a lot of nice interactions with people from the neighborhood. It was so exhausting at the end of every day. And I, this is, I'm not making this uh, comparison lightly, but when you are at a Jewish shiva and you have to talk to every single person that's there and you have to smile and you end up falling on the same three or four sentence constructions and paragraphs to explain about what you're going through. And then you can have this out of body experience where you're having the 20th conversation of the day where you're saying, yeah, it's okay. We're closing. And you know, I'm, I'm feeling good about it and we're going to be looking for a new location. And I hear myself saying these words out loud and I 
they sound practiced and rehearsed. And then I go home that night and I shower and I am just mentally and physically exhausted. Like it feels like I've worked a 20 hour work day. And I know that it's because I am physically, literally like I'm washing Samisa off myself. Like, okay, it's, we only have a couple more days left. Oh, three more days left, two more days left. The last day when we turned off the tablets and I unplugged the open sign and I started to take the garbage out, I felt terrible. There wasn't a second of that final couple hours in the space that I felt relieved. I felt depleted and very unhappy that it had come to this point. And I had these there was a couple glimmers and twinges of what I felt in the beginning of March. Like, why me? Why is this happening? Right? There was about an hour or two of that. And then I went home, I went to bed, I woke up the next day, I rented the U-Haul. And when I put everything in the U-Haul and I gave them back the keys, I felt ecstatic. I felt like this jolt of energy. And so to have 12 hours earlier to have felt so low, and then the next day to have felt so high, it was really strange. And I still am actually thinking about that. You know, 16 days later, I'm still surprised that I had those two vastly different experiences in the same space so close to each other. But I think the way that that your mind works is that, you know, it doesn't have to be one specific feeling at one specific time. So it, it was it was all wrapped up in this intense emotional event of okay, we're done. We're done here. Um but I but the second I got everything out of the U-Haul and I went home, I really felt amazing. I felt so good and I think a lot of it was it had been so much uh there had been so much weighing on me that I just had no idea every day what was going to happen. And so finally taking a little bit of that power back and controlling the moment uh, felt excellent. It was like I was like consolidating myself. My, 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 all my emotions were now like I could kind of control them because I had made the decision to leave, even though I didn't really get to right. make that decision. Well, like I was saying when we first started, and mom, I know you can relate to this too, having owned your own food business. I think there's something that like, you know, reg- folks who have not been in it before don't realize, which is that we talk about what a hard business it is. It isn't just a, you know, hard business because of the, you know, business element of it. It's hard to get customers or it's hard to, Alex Dupac I wrote something one time when he was saying that being, owning a restaurant is like being in a fight every day. And it is, it's like so volatile and unexpected. And you wake up in the morning and you're like, just become conditioned to be like, what could possibly happen today? You know? And like, we all think, we all don't know what could happen today. And perhaps I don't have children. Perhaps it's the same when you have kids or whatever, but there is something that was so specific to being like, okay, well, I remember that the toilets were broken and that uh, I bounced this check to this vendor. I have to deal with that. We might be on, you know, on COD with this person and I have to get, and then the, the fun stuff. And then like, I have to make all this stuff and we have a catering thing and it's like, and your you energy, in the morning and your energy with, trying to fight yeah. that too. <laughs> Right. You wake up in the morning with this big pile on your shoulders, but you're so used to the pile. The way that I have always looked at it is like 
it's a person who loves swimming. They absolutely love swimming, Interesting. but they're wearing tons of clothes and they're soaking wet. <laughs> so you're, you're doing an activity that you actually enjoy, but the outside forces that are upon you are not allowing you to do it in a way that you actually enjoy it. And you can't take those wet clothes off. You have to wear them the entire time that you're swimming. Right. And all so, right. That's amazing. That's and then just there's, a, sto- and there's a storm sometimes, right? Then yeah. sometimes the waves yeah. and the right. lightning. And, ah. and so it's, it's this, you know, to go back to the jumping in analogy, it's like, I'm, I'm going to jump in again, even though I know I'm wearing like a, three-piece suit that's going to get soaking wet and I'm just like why am I doing this to myself but I can't not do it again yeah well I think there's a way to like take that time to reflect and think about how you might always be wearing like a three-piece suit but maybe you can get it tailored (laughs) next time yeah yeah I actually found a beautiful quote I love poetry and I use it a lot in my practice and I found a quote today that fits so beautifully Mary Oliver who's a contemporary um, poet who died recently She says, doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And that's what you're reminding me of today, because you know inside of you that you're wild and that you love the, uh, it's precious, the gift of being a chef and loving food and being creative. And that's, it's who you are. And it's it's going to new places. You're taking it with you to new places. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank Mom. you. Um, Thank you. Um, I had written an essay like early on in the pandemic when a lot of restaurants began to close. And it made me think about what it is that makes restaurants special. And I think it's different for everyone. But I think aside from the wanting to produce something in a kind of, I don't want to say selfish way, but ego driven way, I think it's also that not only business owners at all, but everyone who participates in the restaurant, I think sometimes we just go through the motions in a way where we might not understand exactly what it is we're doing from day to day. But like, you know, people, I think what it is for me, and I want to know what you guys think, but providing memories, right? Our lives go like this. They're so fast. They're, you know, if we're lucky, they mean something to a couple people around us and we had a good time. But, you know, as a, as a restaurant owner, you, you are able to provide people with memories. Uh, You know, people could get engaged or they went, or they, maybe they went to Samisa and grabbed food to go to celebrate like buying their first home or they popped in when a parent died as for some comfort uh they're markers in time in a life and i think people use their experiences with restaurants to mark times that were special to them or meaningful or helpful or like you know and it's and it's a big deal to be able to provide that for people and i think folks working in the restaurant servers dishwashers porters you know maitre d's owners you know we are so used to just going through it and getting done with each day and putting out the literal and metaphorical fires that I think for me at least part of the pain of losing my restaurant was and I as I mentioned I wrote a lot about this but was losing the opportunity to be able to be part of people's stories you know and that's special and it's exciting and it's really rare and so I was like for me, I was like, how will I cope with a life where I don't get to be a part of that magical experience and being in just like in people's lives, you know, and connecting with folks in that way. And like, I don't know, what do you, how do you guys feel about that? Well, 
both you and I, I think, approach the ownership and hospitality of a, of a restaurant in, in very similar ways, which is that you and I always love to go out and they call it touching tables, but it's basically mm-hmm. like you and I would be totally fine sitting out front gabbing for three hours with people as, totally. they, as they walk by the restaurant and as they come in to uh, patronize the restaurant. And so for us, and I'm speaking for you now, but also I'll say for for me, but like, I think it was about the camaraderie with the restaurant staff and creating a family and an environment that people wanted to come and work at, but also being part of the neighborhood where people would walk by and they could pop their head inside and say, Hey, Zara, I'm going to come back for dinner tonight. Like, are is the meatballs on the menu tonight? Or, you know, Hey, Eli, like... Uh, I've, I've got my parents coming into town tomorrow and we're going to swing by because like it's their favorite spot when they come to town. And so the importance of being those milestones and those markers is incredible. And also just being part of the day to day New York hustle bustle, which is like people know their bodega, they know their tailor they know their chef and it's so cool to be that person for someone and it's so cool to be that person that can be the creator of that environment and so being the being the person who can be a conduit for all those moments and discussions and conversation is really rewarding and really and that is part of the reason that I think this business pull so many people in over and over and over again is like the human connection of of conversation plus food is intensely powerful. Well, that's why we can all look back and having had our businesses <clears throat> and we can say to ourselves, let's look at what was instead of what wasn't and what continues to be because there's so much to be proud of. You know, what you say, it's so true, Zara, what you say, this, we give, when you make food, you give so much pleasure to people and you work so hard and you have such integrity and you try, you just try so hard. And so I feel like we can never, ever look at our businesses as failures, you know, or us as failures. You know, it's just, we are everything that we created and we bring that into our next, I ended up to, um, to follow up um, when I my biz, my last business failed, I like to tell this little story because it's interesting. But I had to after the first business, I took all that money, put it into the second business. I moved to Florida, set up a business. Art was very young then. We named it after her. It was called Zaza Hot Hors d'Oeuvres. And um, after two years and and you know many thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars, it failed. It was like a a ship leaving the shore, and I just couldn't catch the ship. And so everything was sold. We sold everything we had. We put it all into, we had one trunk left and we put it on the top of our car and Zara's dad and myself. um, And uh, we drove back to Florida, uh, back to New York with the trunk on the top of the car. And we stopped in North Carolina at a motel. And when we went out in the morning, the trunk had been stolen. So we actually had, we lost everything. We had absolutely everything, but I turned it into a new career. So, but I realized an interesting thing happened. I went back to school and I was asked, what have you learned from your business? You know, where are you today and where are you to want to go? And I realized that I took everything I learned from my business and poured it into who I am today. So that's yeah. that's what we do. There's no... Yeah. Love that. Totally. So true. And I think, yeah, and I think it's just being able to also be like, what if, and this is not going to happen to you, but what if 
you know, you were to never have that narrative about yourself again. And you were going to be Eli Sussman with a desk job who made beautiful food for his friends and family at Mm -hmm. home. Could you still sustain a sense of self and rely on the fact that your work mattered in the past and that like it brought, you know what I mean? Like, could you, or could you not? Or do you need this work? Maybe you need to do this work to, to feel like you're a, a person of, you know, living the life you want to live. I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah. I honestly think that it would be extremely difficult for me to find all the joy and pleasure and self-worth that I found over the last, since I transitioned to cooking, which was when I moved to New York 10 years ago, it would be, so difficult for me to say right now that I could find that from something else. The flip side of that is that I have done this before. I did switch careers and find something that provided everything that I've needed. So to say that it could never happen again when I'm 35 years old and hopefully have a lot of life ahead of me would be sort of naive. And, uh, and to believe that this is the be all end all, um, I don't know, but, uh, but I do definitely, uh, with with sort of reckless abandon, want to want to jump back in and recapture what I've had over the last couple of years. Because as of right now, I do feel like that is what will make me happy, and I hope that it will be the thing that can uh, allow me to provide for myself and my family, and and be a career that is also a a, a life pursuit that is fulfilling. Um, but I also have to be fully aware of the fact that the world has changed dramatically in the last eight months and the the ability to – the ability that we've all uh, been instilled in us by owning all these businesses that have not been successful is that you can take that into whatever you do next and you can help it. Uh, you can use it to help you become successful, right? So um, even if I don't do something in food, there's still so many of the things that I've learned about insurance and being a business owner and and uh, hiring and firing and dealing with customers and vendors and paying rent and all these things that you do in a business that have nothing to do with putting food on a plate are all applicable to other areas of life and can make you a good person and a valuable worker and someone who can contribute in other ways. Uh, it just happens that I really love cooking and so I'd love to be able to do that. But um, you know me, I'm a pretty positive person if I needed you to- are. If I needed to- derive cooking pleasure from just doing it on my own free time, I'm confident that I could figure it out. Yeah. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. 
Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. You are a positive person and also you're a really good person and a really good business owner. And I think one of the things that we've had to face in this pandemic with restaurant closures is that there's a lot of problems in the restaurant industry, you know, and that's a whole nother conversation. And a lot of the way the system works and the hierarchy works is not great, but I will, I want to pay you this compliment because I really mean it is that you're a really good business owner. You're a good person. You treat your employees well. uh, And you're just, you're an all around kind, good guy. So aside from the fact that you're an amazing cook and chef, um, I know that you're going to be able to succeed because you've got that. You've got good juju. You've got a good karma and you've got, you know, you're a good, you're a good person. I think you know how to do it in a way that works. And I encourage you to do it again, because I know that your formula on a personal and on a professional level works. Thank you. Yeah. It was always critically important for my brother and I, that when we started a business, that it was more than just what is the profit line going to look like at the end of the month. And so, you know, that can be a, a way to operate that is to the detriment of expansion and attracting investors and doing things that need to happen when you own a business. But, uh, if you can create a business that employs people and they were happy while they worked there and you feel like you accomplished something as being a uh, a part of a community and also people looked at Samisa and said, oh, we like the way that they engage with, uh, with their customers, their community and their employees, then that's a victory that isn't uh, financially based, but it is something that I can still be really proud of. So uh, that's another way of kind of looking at success and failure in terms of working in the hospitality industry that is different to quantify, but not impossible to quantify. So yeah, I appreciate that. And it's, it's the goal for the future. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So at the end of each episode, we ask every guest the same thing, which is that basically Mm -hmm. if you could have told your younger self something at the beginning of this journey and whatever that is for every person is different for you, I would assume it's the endeavoring into restaurants or whatever, whatever part of the journey of beginning to end, you view it as the most important. What bit of advice would have you given yourself knowing that like you're now in a position of grieving what was? I would tell myself to be patient and I would tell myself that you need to take moments to reflect on things after they occur before you respond. So I still right now respond much too quickly when things happen that are good, bad, or in the middle. And uh, I would tell anyone who is young doing anything that those two things, being patient and having a certain amount of reflection after things occur before you decide how to respond and also how you're going to react and what your path will be, can be extremely healthy in a way to develop a much more 
positive, cohesive response to whatever happened. Excellent. The pause in between. Yeah, the space. It was a great talk <laughs> and a really, it was uh, a great talk, you know, yeah. We we tried we talked to all different people about grief in different ways and it was interesting. We had a guest on last week who was speaking about a project she opened called the Portland Grief House and talking about how she has all kinds of folks come in to experience their grief together. So a lot of times in groups, like therapy groups, it'll be like parents who lost children are together or people who lost spouses are together. And I guess similarly, like here, it's it's exciting and interesting to talk about grief from all different aspects, right? Because obviously the grief of losing a business is extremely different than the grief of losing a child. But I think we did draw some really interesting parallels today in just being able to talk about loss in general and, you know, what that means and what it feels like in a, in a broad way, right? The, the relief of loss, which people don't often like to talk about the pain and I think it was just interesting to kind of tie it all together so thank you for sharing and I can't wait till you open another place thank you um thank you for having me this was really this was uh incredibly satisfying actually and oh good and very therapeutic to talk through all of these uh all of these moments with people that have gone through it before. So I hope that someone is listening that's in the hospitality industry can take a little bit from all three of our stories and, and understand that they're not the first person and they're not the last that this is, that they're going to go through this. Totally. I love that. And just that, like, it's okay to fail. And if what, what fail, like, and I use that in quotations, right? Because like your business can die and it's not necessarily like a failure, but it's okay to try something and have it not succeed. And it's okay to admit that. And we, I hope, like I was saying before, I hope we can all normalize that more, but it's not always busy every day of the week and your bank account goes into the, into the negative often and that those things are really normal. And they happen all the time to absolutely every single person. They happen to Andrew Carmelini and they happen to a person who runs a food truck and it happens to, to everybody. And like, let's talk about that more folks so that when it happens to people, you don't feel like you need to be ashamed of it or hide it, which only perpetuates, you know, the kind of unhealthy business stuff going on. And hang in there, everybody out there who's losing their businesses in, in the, after forward of this show, I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about how many businesses have been lost since COVID. It's really, it's really devastating. So hopefully we can find a way to rebuild in the coming months and years. But thank you so much, Eli. It was wonderful to chat with you. Thank you. On, on air. We always have good chats off air, but this was wonderful. And thank of you course. so much. We'll chat again soon in a kitchen one day. Okay. Yes. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. 
please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.